The Bridge is co-hosting the Global Leadership Summit this year with Bethesda Lutheran Church, and that's August 6th through the 8th. And uh, because we're co-hosting, we get a greatly reduced price in the registration, and we're offering that to you. It's $99 for two days of training. It will be held at Bethesda. And um, if you were to go online, go online right now and register uh, for the Leadership Summit, it'd cost you $189. So we can get it up until June 23rd for $99. And if uh, you'd like to go with us and get our rate, um, I want you to contact David. Now, you could, we, we could give you a way to do it. Uh, if you uh, go through us, we can put off your paying for it until August 6th. We'll register you, and then you would pay for it by August 6th. So this is a great opportunity. I've been to this probably 15 times through the years, and it's been very meaningful for my leadership. And I would encourage you, uh, this is for church leaders as well as business leaders, professionals. Uh, it's going to be uh, really helpful in equipping you for everyday life. Bridge Kids, thanks for joining us for worship. You are dismissed. I want to begin today by telling you about an amazing woman. Actually, Sue is the most amazing woman in the world, the one I'm married to, but this is not about her. Uh, this is about Harriet Thompson. Harriet Thompson is a cancer survivor. She knows that life sometimes is very hard. She has learned to navigate difficult circumstances. This past year, Harriet Thompson finished her 16th marathon. And, you know, I have to remind some of you that that's 26.2 miles. And she did it at the San Diego Rock and Roll Marathon. During her training this year, Harriet struggled with a staph infection, which cannot be fun to, to cope with. And to make matters more difficult for Harriet, she was still grieving the loss of her husband who died that past year. Harriet Thompson is 92 years old. Let's see the picture of Harriet. In fact, she is 92 years old and 65 days. On, and this is May 31st, 2015. She broke the previous uh, world record for the oldest woman to complete a marathon. The previous record was held by a 92-year-old and 19 days set at the Honolulu Marathon in 2010. Harriet had to deal... You can show the other pictures too. Harriet had to deal with difficult challenges in life. You too have had to deal with difficult challenges in life, haven't you? You know about life is hard, and, and you're learning perseverance, and you're learning to cope with difficult challenges. At the age of 92, Harriet gained national attention. Moses was 80 when he gained national attention. Moses had to learn to navigate difficult circumstances. And during, uh, he was cast into a midlife crisis, if you remember, at the age of 40 in the land of Midian, where he hung out for 40 years, learning to walk with God. 
There he learned that life can be very hard. There he began to train uh, for his uh, work that God would call him to in Egypt. The challenges he faced in Midian were nothing like what he would face in Egypt. And uh, God would call and raise up Moses for one purpose, and that was to lead God's people out of the uh, land of Egypt and out of the power and control of Pharaoh. God had a plan, and that's what we've been focusing on. If you're, this is your first time, we've been uh, working through the book of Exodus. We're focusing on the first 20 chapters of the book of Exodus. Today we're in Exodus chapter 10. God's plan was to loosen Pharaoh's hold on God's people. And God, uh, God's plan included, intending, uh, uh, included sending 10 plagues on the land of Egypt against the gods of Egypt. And already we've seen uh, seven plagues. There was uh, God turning the Nile River into blood and God uh, bringing frogs on the land to cover the land. And then God bringing after that gnats. And that would have been a fun one. And then he brought um, a, a curse. He brought flies and then he brought uh, a curse on livestock. And then he brought boils on people. And uh, then he brought hail. That's what we looked at last week. And God was... Uh, bringing judgment on the land of Egypt against the gods of Egypt. And we have saw that week after week after week. So today we're going to look at eight and nine. We got two plagues today. So hang in there with me. We're not going to do plagues forever. We're still in them. And life is still hard and difficult. First of all, in verses one through 20, God uses locusts to bring judgment. And you can follow on your outline. You have one in your program if you'd like would really encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 10. It's going to be way more meaningful if you're following along in the scriptures. Verses 1 and 2, we see God's purpose. And this is God's purpose for all the plagues. For all the plagues. In verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Remember that signs are miracles. They're spectacular events, and their purpose is to draw attention to God's message and God's messenger. There's always a purpose with the miracles, and it's to show, hey, wake up, people. God is at work. You should, you should pay attention to uh, God's spokesperson, and that would be Moses. So said, the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Verse 2, here it is, that you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. The first purpose is that you're to tell your children and your grandchildren. This is really important. It's easy just to read right over it. This is really important. God was doing a major thing, and he wanted all people everywhere for all time to know about this. And the way it was going to start is that, okay, parents, you've seen this. You've experienced this. You were here. Now, I want you to tell your children what God has done, who, who he is and what he's like and what he said. And I want you to tell your children. That's your responsibility. And then when they have children, I want you to tell your grandchildren. By the way, this has always been God's plan, the family. 
that kids grow up in a safe environment and learn to listen to people that they trust. And they can learn about who God is, what He is like, how He works. How do we communicate with Him? Does He answer prayer? How can you tell when God answers prayer? These are things that God has always asked the family to do, and it starts with parents. The second thing is that you may know that I am the Lord. God wanted Moses to know. He's just reaffirming over and over to Moses and to Aaron and to all the Israelites who God is. He is the true and living God. He is Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God, the way God revealed himself at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He is the righteous one, the holy one, the God of justice, the God of mercy, the God of compassion. He is the sovereign God. He's the almighty God. And and his work displays who he is, that he is the one and only God. Verses 3 through 6, we see God's plan this time and this plague. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, so they're going to, like former times, not every time, but like former times, they're going to announce to Pharaoh what is coming, and they're going to give him a chance to back off. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. And over and over again, we see that Pharaoh has had a hard heart. Pharaoh himself, and this is, you know, you can kind of hard for Pharaoh to give up his role. Pharaoh himself was viewed as a god in Egypt. There were many gods, but Pharaoh himself was one of the gods of Egypt. He was very powerful. He was the one calling the shots. Pharaoh had the ability to control the outcome of uh, circumstances, to get what he intended. And he was used to getting his own way. He was highly experienced in writing the script of his nation and manipulating the outcomes for his own benefit and then sometimes the benefit of Egyptians. Verse 4. Moses says to Pharaoh, if you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. So here it is. This is the plague. It will be a plague of locusts. They're going to invade the nation of Egypt. And just like we've seen before, there are clear markers about this. It's tomorrow. It's not today. It's not Tuesday. It's tomorrow. So One of the ways you can tell this is from God is tomorrow. It's going to happen. You can count on it. Verse 5. They will cover the face of the ground, the locusts, so that it cannot be seen. The ground, it will cover the ground. You won't be able to see the ground. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your parents nor your ancestors have ever seen from, from that day they settled in the land till now. This plague will be devastating. The plagues have become more intense. Now, we've seen that week after week. They become more intense, and they become more focused one by one. This will cripple the Egyptian economy. It's going to cut out their food supply, 
Um, it will take whatever plant life is left, and uh, it will be destruction on the land. And look what happens next. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Moses didn't follow any formal protocol here. He walked out on the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful human being in the world, and he just walks out. That produces some questions in verse 7. Now Pharaoh meets with his leaders and advisors, and we see in verse 7, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? By the way, Pharaoh is starting to lose influence among his own people. They're starting to see this is not going well, and Pharaoh doesn't seem to be making progress. Things seem to be getting worse. It seems like the best thing to do would be just to let the people go. And they're not sure that Pharaoh realizes the gravity of their situation. Verses 8 through 11, Pharaoh begins to negotiate. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me, who will be going? So we see apparently Pharaoh is moved by the locusts, that this is real and powerful, and uh, it brought total destruction to the land in a very short time. Uh, And Pharaoh is now ready to make a a concession. By the way, uh, in the 20th century, there's uh, great documentation about locust plagues and um, how they can uh, come into an area and they can do uh, many square miles at once and just eat the place dry. And there's, there's lots of things documented. And I haven't seen so much in the 21st century, but in the 20th century, it was still a major issue in some parts of the world, uh, consuming... Uh, thousands of square miles of land. And uh, Pharaoh's just getting an intense dose in a specific location. So um, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who will be going. So Pharaoh is now ready to make a concession, but it's only a concession. He's not ready to go all in as Moses has asked. Pharaoh should be pretty clear by now what Moses has asked. And, and Pharaoh wants to keep a little bit of control. He wants to have a little bit of handle on the situation. He wants to make sure he has some kind of influence. He wants to save face. And he asks for clarification. Just who's going now? Let me know. Verse 9, Moses answered, and he comes back uh, pretty clear on this. We will go with our young and our old and our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and herds, because We are to celebrate the festival to the Lord. So Moses does not compromise. Verse 10, Pharaoh says, the Lord be with you. I don't think Pharaoh knew much about how to talk about God. He says, the Lord be with you. If I let you go, along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. Pharaoh accuses Moses of uh, having an evil motive, that his plans are evil, uh, that, that, that... He's not going to be true to his word. You won't be able to count on him. And um, Pharaoh's sort of speaking like the Lord be with you as sort of like he wants to uh, make a slur against God. And he also wants to sort of pronounce a curse against Moses. 
And he says, clearly you're bent on evil. Verse 11, no, having the, have only the men and uh, men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. So what Pharaoh wants to do now is he, wants, he doesn't want to let everybody go as, as Moses has asked. Only the men, because only the men are going to worship and you don't need to take the women and children. And in fact, if Pharaoh is able to get, keep the women and the children back, he's got collateral for the future and he's got a lever on Moses and they're not going to go far. Verses 12 through 15, God's plan implemented. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that the locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the field. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land and all that day and all that night by morning the wind brought the locusts. So God brought the locusts. He brought judgment on the land of Egypt. He again shows his power and this is what he's been doing plague after plague. He's showing his power over the created order and against the gods of Egypt. Verse 14. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will it ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail. Everything growing in the fields and the fruit and the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on the tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh... Uh, Seems like this has made an impact on Pharaoh. And so also Mero, uh, excuse me, Pharaoh, we've seen, still wants to have some kind of control. And here's what he knows about controlling the situation. If he calls Moses back, the problem will stop for now. So that's what he does. Confession, verses 16 through 17 Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God against you. That sounds pretty good. That sounds like we're finally reaching Pharaoh. That sounds like Pharaoh is beginning to humble himself. And it's, of course, after Egypt has been devastated. Verse 17, he says, Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take the deadly plague away from me. This sounds like repentance. But not yet. One thing is for, for sure. The gods of Egypt have failed the Pharaoh time after time after time. Newt, the sky goddess, could not stop the locusts. Osiris, the god of the crop fertility, could not stop God's locusts. Verses 18 through 19, God's judgment withdrawn. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. One of the things is, this, this story teaches, and so do all the plagues, the way you communicate with God is through prayer. That's what we see Moses do. We just watch. There's no command to pray. We just watch. This is how Moses communicates with God in a very humble way. He talks to God in prayer. And God withdraws his judgment and answer to prayer. 
And one of the things that's interesting here is the withdrawal of the locusts is maybe more miraculous than their arrival. They came in with a very powerful wind from another land. That's a miracle in itself, and especially on the timing of it. But now they're withdrawn. Every one of them are carried away by a west wind into the Red Sea. Verse 20, refusal, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. And so it seems like we're back to square one with Pharaoh. He still thinks he can somehow solve this. He still thinks he can manipulate the outcome. And after all, he is a mighty Egyptian, and they are only poor Hebrew lowlifes, which brings the ninth plague, verses 21 through 29. God uses darkness to bring his judgment on the land of Egypt. And so we see God's plan. Verses 21 through 23. This time, there's going to be no warning. Moses is not going to go to Pharaoh, make an offer, give him a chance to change his mind. No offer here. This was true on the third plague and the sixth plague, and now it's true on the ninth plague. God is just going to put it into action. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so the darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So God wastes no time. Moses responds immediately to God's command. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. And so there's a distinction again between Egypt and Israel, how God would deal with the Egyptians and how God would deal with with the Israelites. Now, when you think about this, being in the dark for three days may not sound like a very big deal. But we have electricity, and they didn't. And so um, they worked from sun up. We don't always get up at sun up. Some of you do, not everybody. They worked from sun up till sundown. And soon after sundown, it was lights out. They went to bed. They didn't stay up and watch TV. They didn't have internet. And they went to bed. And they they were ready to go at sunup. But this just wasn't nighttime. Because in nighttime, sometimes there's moonlight or starlight. And you can still see. You just have to adjust to the light. This is the absence of light. This is a supernatural darkness. By the way, a great symbol of judgment Because according to Jesus, he describes hell with the term outer darkness. Um, John chapter 1, Jesus is described as light coming into the world of darkness. And the darkness didn't comprehend him. He's referring to a spiritual darkness. But this is a literal darkness. And we would say it is a supernatural darkness. And it would last for three days. If you were an Egyptian, and and nobody said how long it was going to last. If you were an Egyptian, it probably seemed like an eternity. To be in a room, and maybe you could talk to somebody, but there's no way you could see them. And you couldn't even see your own hand. And how were they to do whatever they needed to do? Whether they were inside or outside, it made no difference. It was total darkness. Verse 24, compromise is sought. 
This is Pharaoh's M.O. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. So it seems like, you know, he's given in again. And uh, this will stop the plagues. That's, that's his goal here. Just got to stop this. I can influence Moses now. I can, I can change the circumstances. I can make the darkness go away. He says, go worship the Lord. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. So he's trying to put another uh, condition in the plan. He wants the flocks and the herds. And he's, he's even hoping that, um, okay, if I do a little bit on my part, you should do a little bit on your part, and um, I'll get what I want. And the great value to the Egyptians is if the, if the herds and the flocks are left behind, you see, they've lost theirs with the plague of the livestock. And so they'd like to get something from this, get something from the Israelites. Compromise sought, verses 25 and 26, negotiations, more negotiations. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifice and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. And notice how he says it. Not a hoof is to be left behind. You better not even try to take one. Every one of our livestock, every one of our animals is going. And Moses holds his ground here. This is the quality of an excellent leader. There's going to be no compromise on God's instructions and God's commands. We're not going to tweak it in any way. No negotiations. He says uh, we, we have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God until we get there. We will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. So he says, you know, we've got to follow God's instructions. And I like Moses here. He says at the right time, God said we should go. We've got to take our animals. We've got to take our families. We've got to get out of Egypt. We've got to go worship. And we don't know what God is going to have us do. But at the right time, God is going to show us. God is going to give us the information we need. We will know what we have to do, but we have to, by faith, we have to walk out of here. We've got to leave by faith. Here's what we know. We know we can count on God. We know that God is trustworthy, and that's what Moses is leaning into. Verses 27 through 29, which brings us to the end of the passage, another refusal. But the Lord God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh changes his mind again. He is not a man of his own word. Verse 28, Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. You remember the last time um, Moses walked out on Pharaoh? So Pharaoh's going to take back the reins. He's going to, a little bit of control here. I'm going to make Moses leave. Moses is not going to walk out on me. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. So Pharaoh attempts to show that he is in control. And he makes a pronouncement, his own prediction about Moses. Verse 29, just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now, Moses will come back to Pharaoh. But it's not to ask for anything. It's done. It's over. There's no more asking. There's no more warning in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, Moses will come back to 
to receive the message that God's people are released. They are let go to go out of Egypt. And that's our passage. Let's talk about some lessons from this passage. Some lessons. Number one, God's stories are meant to be shared so that people will know about our God. God's stories are meant to be shared. You have God's stories, how God has worked in your life. God wanted the story of the Exodus to be told to all generations over and over and over again. 3,500 years later, we are still telling the story. It is still crucial, and it's going to have a major foundation for the New Testament. By the way, that's why we're going from Exodus to the book of Galatians uh, after the study of Exodus, because it's, Exodus is a major foundation to the New Testament. The Exodus story displays God's grace, His patience, His mighty power, His justice, His sovereign control of everyday circumstances. And as God's people would tell this story, they would learn about God, and their children would learn about God, and they could pass it from one generation to the next. We learn about God when somebody tells us a God story. That is a true story on how God has worked in their lives. When we tell a story about how we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're telling a God story, a true story. And it's about God. It's about what God has done for us. Uh, we're giving evidence. We're, we're being a, a witness to the truth. We're telling what we know. We don't have to have all the answers for everything there is to know about God or the Bible or what somebody needs to know before they can become a follower of Christ. But we can tell what we do know, our own story, when we see God at work in our lives. So as God has provided for you financially, tell that story. As God has provided guidance and direction in your life, Tell that story because other people need to know how God works. God is honored when, you're, when you share how God has worked in your life. Secondly, second lesson, we have a responsibility to teach our children and our grandchildren about God's righteous judgment and his mighty power. Right out of the book of Exodus chapter 10, verse 2. God told Moses that this Exodus story should be told to the children and to the grandchildren. And I mentioned this earlier, this is God's plan, the family, for kids to learn in a safe environment where they are loved and instruct, instructed and nurtured. And so uh, they learn about who God is, and they have tough questions, and they can ask in a safe place, why does God do this, or why can't we see God? All the kinds of questions that kids ask, they need to ask in a safe place. And they need, they need an adult who's patient and kind and uh, will invest in their kids. This is what we, we need to do. We need to invest in our kids. Um, and I want to just say, please take time to read to your kids. Share the stories of the Bible, and you can do them with great Bible story books. Read to them. Teach your kids how to pray. Uh, pray with your kids. Help your kids learn to see for themselves how God answers. Just because you see something, don't assume they get it unless you help them. Um, show them how to trust God. 
Show them how to trust God with their future. And I hope that means mom and dad pray together and uh, trust God with our financial needs, trust God with decisions, and they just know that this is how mom and dad operate. I've seen it at home. I just get it. It's just kind of a a natural thing. And I know uh, watching my wife through all these years, one of the uh, greatest examples she is is her commitment to her own time with God, her devotions, her prayer time, her time on the Word. And um, she is just extremely faithful and has a tremendous impact on her character. Now, where did she learn that? Nobody told her to do it. She grew up watching her mom. And she just somehow knew that that's what big girls do is they read their Bibles. And so when she could read her Bible, she started reading her Bible on her own. And she she learned about having a quiet time. And she's pretty much been faithful all of our marriage, which is a long, long time. Okay. Uh, Number three, humility before God. This is the third lesson. Humility before God and others is always appropriate. You already knew that. Moses learned humility by his difficult life. Moses lived in the desert for 40 years, and he learned a whole lot about humility. On the other hand, Pharaoh was too proud to acknowledge the goodness of God or the power of God. And uh, you'll remember that God is opposed to the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. He gives his favor to the humble. A reminder for us is Philippians 2, verse 3. And I would just like to say again, you know, most of the Christian life is about being reminded of what we already know. And I find that I just need to be reminded a lot. So if I repeat myself, it's because I need to be reminded. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. And then um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Here's our model. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude. He is our example. He was humble. Let his attitude live in you. Fourth lesson. Number four, refusing to obey God can bring harsh discipline to the believer. Refusing to obey God can bring harsh discipline to the believer. Pharaoh was not a believer when he received the harsh treatment from God. He He received judgment from God. And it's very true, if you study the Bible, that unbelievers will face a harsh judgment of God. And it's going to be, according to Revelation chapter 20, ultimately in the lake of fire, uh, where they will experience an eternal death. As I understand the Bible, genuine believers in Christ will ultimately be in heaven eternally. But here's what I want to focus on just for a minute. But in this life, Disobedient believers may experience serious discipline from God. We're going to go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and just see an example here. In verse 28, it says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So this is a warning from the Apostle Paul. and He's saying before we take communion, before we share in the bread and the cup, we should examine our own lives. 
We need to be spiritually clean. We need to be right with God when we share in the time of communion. So we ought to examine ourselves. Verse 29, for those who eat the bread and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And Paul is saying, if you don't uh, honor God, and if you don't take this seriously, and if you're not humble and truthful before God before you take communion, God's judgment can come upon you. Verse 30, that is why many among you believers in Jesus at the church in Corinth are weak physically and sick, have illnesses, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's not falling asleep because the sermon was too long. That's, that's physical death for the Christian. And all I'm saying is, here's one example that we know of, and it related to communion. And I don't think that's necessarily the only thing that God would discipline his children for, but that's certainly very serious. And I'm, and I'm not saying, let me make this really clear, I'm not saying because a believer has an illness or because they struggle with something, that it's because of sin. Mostly, I don't think that would be true. On some occasions, it could be true. And by the way, if you're struggling with something, it just won't go away. It's okay to ask God if there's anything in your, in, in your life or in my life that is out of balance or something is not right with God and I need to confess. Um, four years ago, I went through a, a really difficult health issue and I think God just wanted to let me know about people who suffer with pain. And uh, I really, I went through many months of difficult pain and I thought ministry was over and I even thought for a while I might be dying and um, it turned out to be uh, something called PMR and got some meds and got me straightened out and life was good. But I'll tell you what, I asked God if there's anything that I needed to do or to change or he wanted me to understand. That's a good question to ask. I certainly learned a ton of things through it. I learned about people who have uh, serious pain and I don't take that lightly anymore when I hear about people in pain and there's no simple answers for Um, Okay, and the last one, God is very interested in genuine worship. God is very interested in genuine worship. And here's, think about this. God brought 10 plagues on Egypt. Why? So his people could go freely and worship him. It wasn't just the power play. He really wanted his people to worship and have the freedom to worship in a God-honoring and a genuine way. Now, when it comes to us, John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, this is Jesus, and he talks to the woman at the well, and he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, meaning they'll, they'll worship with a connection to God through the Holy Spirit. It means that people will be born again. They'll need to be born again to have this spiritual connection with God. And they'll worship in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they'll worship in truth, meaning according to truth. It means you can't make up the way you want to worship God. It, needs to, it means you need to worship God according to how He has outlined worship to be. So we follow His instructions. Verse 24, God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so look at verse 23, the very end. This is the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. 
God is searching for worshipers today. That's why he's raised us up to be a church. We have a mission to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And that means raising up worshipers to bring glory to God. The writer of Hebrews gives us this instruction about true worship in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So, um, sacrifice. Key concept in the Old Testament worship system. They offered animals for sacrifice dead on the altar, which is weird to us. When it comes to the New Testament, one of the ways that we worship is we offer to God a sacrifice of praise. When we praise God, when we give God credit for who he is, whether we're singing or whether it's through our words, that is worship, okay? We're giving God the credit for who he is and what he's done. And do not forget, verse 16, to do good. This is about a lifestyle of worship. When you do good in the power of God's Holy Spirit, you're bringing worship and honor back to God. And when you share with others, when you're generous, when you give money to God, and when you share your stuff with people, it's an act of worship. It honors God and reflects who He is. Do not forget to do good and to share with others. For such sacrifices, God is pleased. One uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And the Apostle Paul writes, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So Paul has just received, he's a missionary, and he's been sent financial gifts, missionary support for his ministry. And he says, they, the gifts, are a fragrant offering, offering an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. He's saying when you give financially with a right heart before God, you are worshiping the true and living God. And then he gives a promise in verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Promise that God will meet all your needs. You know what? If you don't give, there's no promise. Last one, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is one of my uh, favorite passages. He gives 11 chapters in the book of Romans before he gets here. There's only two commands in the first 11 chapters, and they're in Romans chapter 6. And, and Paul takes all of this time to explain the meaning and significance of the death of Christ as it relates to the unbeliever, the believer, the Jewish pe- uh, person, the nation of Israel. And then he gets here and he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that he's provided the grace, that he's provided Jesus Christ as the way of salvation, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The Old Testament was about putting animals on the altar, and God says, I want you to put your body on the altar, not as a dead sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. And it's just a way of saying, God, I'm all yours. I'm all in. Here I am. You are the master. 
I'm the servant. I want to be a living sacrifice for you. Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. Let's stand together. I'd like to give us an opportunity to make Romans 12.1 a reality as we uh, close this time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Exodus and thank you for the lessons that come from the book of Exodus. And God, we have been just reminded over and over about your power and your love and your, your patience and your compassion and your righteousness and your justice. And we know that you've been so patient, patient to call us to become followers of Christ. And God, sometimes we take things for granted. We take you for granted. And uh, just as we've been reminded this morning from Romans 12, 1, that you have a desire for us to offer our bodies back to you, to offer ourselves, to offer all that we are back to you. And so, God, just as we stand before you this morning as a church and just individually and privately in your own hearts, could you do that today? Because you just tell God, I want to I give all of myself to you, all of me to you. I want to submit to the Lordship of Jesus in every way. My body belongs to you. You have purchased me with the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. I've been bought with a price. I've been redeemed. And I belong to you. And I just voluntarily today give myself back. And say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to be used by you. I want to be empowered by you. Make that your prayer. Just offer yourself up to God. Father, we thank you for the privilege to worship and giving ourselves back to you is a reasonable act of worship for Jesus' sake. Amen.